Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent, flying solo today. Um, I want to thank Travis for being on the show last week and uh, filling in for Sean, um, but flying solo this week. But today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, um, a very fundamental topic um, on the person and the natures of Christ. Um, Before I do, I want to mention that we are on the are hosted by in part uh, the Society of Reformed Podcasters. You can check us and other podcasts out at reformpodcast.com. Check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. And if you're watching on our YouTube channel and you haven't subscribed yet, hit that subscribe button and hit the bell to be notified when new videos come out. Um, but back to our topic, we're going to be talking about the person and the natures of Jesus Christ. What does it mean that Jesus was two natures, or is two natures, I should say? I'm going to be precise in my own language. <clears throat> what does it mean that he's one person? These are very important topics um, to discuss um, as we see how Christianity really is flushed out and what Christianity really means. Um, I want to thank those who provided suggestions for this week epi- this week's episode. I had asked for suggestions um, on Twitter and Facebook. Um, so I really appreciate those who did provide suggestions. Um, actually, this flows from uh, a suggestion put up by a gentleman named Kevin, um, who had asked uh, about some aspects of Christology. Um, and I didn't fall on that uh, decision right away, but this was, I kept leaning this way. I was like, eh, let's, you know, let's talk about this. Um, and it actually worked out perfect timing because there's been some stirring on the Twitter space and on social media um, about a certain group that has been toying around with uh, the hypostatic union. So it, it's timely that we're talking about this today. Um, some sources uh, that I want to point to that I used, um, Turning Points by Mark Knoll. This is a very helpful book uh, on church history, Decisive Moments in the History of Christianity, 3rd edition. Um, it's very, very helpful, I think, when we're talking about um, different aspects of the Christian faith in terms of church history that really had an impact on where Christian uh, Christianity went and where it was going. Um, so Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, the Great Schism, and other decisive moments in church history are discussed in this book. Very helpful. Um, Dolzal's new article that's on academia.edu. It's in draft form right now, to be clear. Um, but I did read that article in preparation for today. It's called Neither Subs- uh, Subtraction Nor Addition, The Words Terminative Assumption of a Human Nature. Extremely helpful in this discussion and highly recommend going to read it. Again, it's in draft form. It's not done. Um, but what I read in there was very, very helpful, and, and I would very much encourage you to read it. Um, Turretin's Institutes of Eclectic Theology was another one, and um, there were others as well that I referred to, um, I believe. But I uh, just wanted to put those out there. Uh, even when I teach, I like at church, um, I've utilized time at the beginning to just mention sources I use. It's helpful in keeping yourself out of trouble in terms of who you're referencing and that you are referencing. And it 
and it's helpful, I think, for others who may, you know, if people want to do further study on the topic, they can go and look it up themselves in the sources that you used um, and not just take your word for it. So I think that's helpful. Anyways, let's dive into our topic. Um, we're going to talk about Christology. Christology really is the basics of what we believe. Um, Jesus Christ is the center of the scriptures. He is really the foundation of uh, what we believe as Christians. You know, the word Christian, those who follow Christ, it is foundation what we believe. Um, I want to read Matthew 16, 13 through 16 real quick. It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesar, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what you believe about Jesus will ultimately determine your eternal destiny. There's only one way to heaven. That one way is through Jesus Christ. John 14 is very clear about this. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. There's no reconciliation apart from uh, reconciliation with the Father apart from Jesus Christ. We cannot get to the Father apart from Jesus Christ. We must believe in him by faith and faith alone. Uh, and by doing so, by believing in him, by embracing him, we have unification with the Father in terms of relationship. We can approach the Father truly in Jesus Christ uh, based on his perfect life and his death, taking care of our sins and imputation of the uh, positive, active obedience of Jesus Christ um, on our behalf and in terms of him keeping the law. So it's knowing who Christ is is absolutely fundamental. If you don't know who Christ is, how in the world are you going to know uh, what Christ to believe in to reconcile you to the Father? You can't know uh, the Father apart from the Son, right? Jesus made it very clear that he revealed the Father, right? What did Jesus tell Philip? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because he reveals who the Father is, right? So if you don't come to Jesus, the right Jesus, you're not going to get to the Father. It's really that simple. So it's foundational to what we believe. And to deny a biblical Christology, um, to even, you know, you know we're not going to have a full understanding of everything about Christ. You know, we're, we're growing and we're learning, but there are certain foundational aspects of who Christ is that if we get wrong, make a completely different Jesus and um, can be detrimental to our souls. So we have to be very careful when we're talking about who Christ is, um, that we're clear, that it's biblical, that uh, our, and another thing to do too is, is this consistent with what we see in church history? Is this how the church has seen Christ? Although the church is not the ultimate authority, um, seeing what men who are far smarter than we are and have worked these things through, some with their own, you know, paying for it with their own lives maybe, or um, with much persecution and much sacrifice, seeing what they believed about these things, and does it match up with Scripture and learning from them? You know, those are things we should look at. So we have to be very, very careful um, that we are accurately portraying 
Christ uh, with who the scriptures say that he is, um, because it can have detrimental impacts if we do not. So we, we have to be very careful about these things. It's, it's absolutely paramount. Uh, and I'm looking for something here. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to mention in light of this, um, this episode, as I was preparing for it, and this was not as a result of seeing this, there was a tweet that came out. Um, I think it was, it was a discussion. It was either the third or the fourth, but with a provisionist perspective, um, with the provisionist perspective, you know, make sure I get that right. They're going to come after me. Um, but there was a, they had posted a tweet about classical theism and essentially um, bemoaning classical theism uh, and clearly uh, saying things against it. But in that discussion, there was a talk about uh, the hypostatic union, the two natures of Jesus Christ. Um, and someone had said something. They said, this is AC 1377. He said, well, let's take at that a bit. Do you believe that Christ has two distinct natures? And the provisionist perspective replied, I don't think so. What's the biblical reason for thinking so? And this is actually very troubling because it shows that there is a fundamental disconnect here uh, with regards to what they're professing and what Christianity actually is. Um, so I think it's very timely that we're talking about this today uh, because this controversy is swirling again. And this should be honestly assumed uh, in all Christians. We should all, as Christians, be able to easily confess that Jesus is one person in two natures. Now, working that out and all the implications of it, we might not be able to do very well or at all. And that's okay. But as long as we are grasping these fundamental realities, Jesus is two natures, God and man, fully God, fully man, unified in one person, we're good. Okay? That's just, that's basic Christianity. Okay? This is Christianity 101. If you get this wrong, you do not believe in Christ. Therefore, you have a false gospel because you have a false Christ, and you're not a Christian. If you deny these things, you're just not. You're not a Christian. You must get Christ right. You must believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Who he is is fundamental. I just wanted to note that in passing. But the church um, throughout the centuries has had to wrestle with who Jesus is. Um, although there seems to be, at least from what I can tell in my own study, there seems to be have been a broad consensus up until the fifth century on who Jesus is. It seemed to be, it was assumed who Jesus was. That's how I see it in my own studies. If someone else can correct me, please feel free to do so, but that's how I take it. Um, and this is in spite of the the Nicaea controversy where um, Arius created problems for the church with his views of Jesus. And this would have been in the fourth century, right? Arius comes along and there was obviously there was controversy even before Arius or even before Nicaea at least came on the scene. Arius wasn't the only one that was causing issues with regards to the person of Jesus or or who Jesus was. Um, but Arius is the most well known and the one that is discussed the most. Um, but Arius rejected the idea, the concept that Jesus was homoousios, right? This. Homo means same, 
Usias having to do a substance, same substance, that he was the same substance with the father. Not homo oisias, a similar substance, but homo usias, same substance, right? That's very, very important to remember. And this is really philosophical language um, that was being utilized to help describe the relationship on a substantive level between the father and the son. Um, because if Jesus, if Jesus was the same substance as the father, then he had to be equal with the father, right? There was no subordination, which Arius clearly taught. Um, and that would have, that flatly contradicts that. Um, and Arius rejected this concept as he didn't find that term homoousios in scripture. He, he'd like, oh, this word isn't in scripture. Why in the world would I use this term that's not found in the Bible to describe who Jesus is? Okay, that's that's very um, that's a very important con uh, hermeneutical methodology to note as it relates to Arius. Now, what's interesting, and I'll say this as kind of a side note because it is it is related, and I think it's important to note. Um, there are those who have argued that certain implications of divine simplicity are allegedly not biblical or not found in Scripture, that are or going beyond the bounds of what Scripture teaches as it relates to God. Um, but that's that's how Arius argued. Uh, the heretic Arius argued. Um, you know, hey, I don't see this term in the scriptures, so it must not be true. You know, and they're going, hey, I don't see this, uh, some of these uh, implications of divine simplicity in the scriptures, so it must not be true. Um, and, and there's nothing wrong necessarily with arguing in that fashion as long as it's consistent and, and properly grounded in a proper hermeneutical methodology. Um, but it should at least give us pause uh, to think long and hard about what we're saying, especially when uh, someone like Arius uh, has argued like that. And look where that led him. Right. And we have to be careful. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that everything that isn't found in Scripture must be true, um, but it means we have to be careful how we argue like that because we believe in good and necessary consequences as well. And we have to distinguish between good and necessary consequence, which we would believe is contained in the Scriptures, and that which truly is not found in the Scriptures, um, and which truly is going beyond what is found uh, in Holy Writ. So we, we have to be careful to distinguish those things. And that's really where the work comes in. Uh, and that's where it's hard to do. But we have to, we have to be careful uh, to do that. But anyways, um, but Nicaea didn't settle the issue, though, as uh, that Arius had catalyzed, right? Nicaea, you know, they, they affirmed that Jesus was the same substance with the Father. He wasn't a distinct being. And he wasn't subordinate to the Father. He was equal to the Father, and he was of the same substance. This confessed monotheism while talking about the real distinction between the Father and the Son. But it didn't settle the issue, and there was still controversy even afterwards with Athanasius, even with Arius. Arius came back around and actually later um, seems to maybe have recanted his views, uh, at least to some extent. But I don't know how how much he uh, really did, um, or it was just more out of self preservation. Because uh, you got to remember, Arius was exiled um, after as a result of the Council of Nicaea. So there's also self preservation involved here, 
uh, with regards to his social status. So that could also have played into that. Um, but it didn't settle the issue. There was still debate, but it, it laid this groundwork to uh, really, I guess, be a springboard to discuss Jesus uh, in more detail and f more firmly ground the church's understanding of, uh, of who Jesus was, who Jesus is. So now we fast forward about 100 years after Nicaea to Chalcedon. Okay, Chalcedon, Council of Chalcedon um, was in the 5th century. One thing that was addressed in Chalcedon was the incarnation. Uh, was Christ God and man, right? How, did, how does that work? It essentially is what they were trying to do. Uh, was Jesus two persons or just one, right? Uh, it was asserted by Chalcedon. Chalcedon affirmed the Nicene Creed or the Creed of Nicaea. I don't know if that's the, I think the, the Nicene Creed that we have today, I think came later. But the Creed of Nicaea, I think, was what they essentially the doctrine that they uh, that the Council of Nicaea settled on. But they affirmed Nicene doctrine explicitly, uh, so that Jesus was one with the Father in terms of substance, but that Jesus was also a real man. Okay, there was no mixing of those natures, and this was an antithesis to the mono what was called the monophysite view which saw Jesus as one nature, just divine. There was, no, there was no real human nature. There was just a divine nature, right? The monophysites. Um, but however, we as Orthodox Christians confess that Jesus is really divine, right? According to his uh, divine nature and really human according to his human nature and that they are unified in the one person of the divine Logos. So I want to read the Chalcedonian definition real quick uh, to give an idea of where did the Council of Chalcedon fall upon. So let, let's read this. So following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one in the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity, the same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body and a body. Excuse me consubstantial homoousios with the father as regards his divinity and the same consubstantial homoousios with us as regards his humanity like us in all respects except for sin begotten before the ages from the father as regards his divinity and in the last days the same for us and for our salvation from mary the virgin god-bearer uh, Theotokos, as regards his humanity, one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person in a single subsistent being, hypostasis. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one in the same only begotten God, uh, Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about him. And as the Lord Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers, i.e. the Nicene Creed, handed it down to us. That's the Chalcedonian definition. That is what they settled upon as it relates to uh, who Jesus was. And that's 
taken directly from Mark Knoll's uh, Turning Points book, page 70 of the Kindle edition, uh, the third edition as well. So if you want to go reference that. Um, but you can see they were very careful and precise in how they laid out who Jesus was, it, talking about his substance, his natures, and distinguishing them, but not mixing them, and where were they unified in the person of the divine Logos. Uh, and I, I just want to note, as a side, on the authority of creeds, um, they are authoritative. Okay, we don't want to, uh, we don't want to get into any notion that they aren't authoritative in any way. They are authoritative, but only as a secondary authority, subservient to the ultimate authority of Scripture. Scripture is our final authority in faith and practice, right? And the, the creeds were seen as the result of consistent exegesis. It was just a systematizing and formulation of biblical teaching. That's all it was. Now, a creed qua creed is not inherently authoritative, ultimately, because it's flowing from that ultimate authority for faith and practice, which is Scripture, as it relates to uh, how we're to live and what we're to do, uh, the Scriptures themselves. But they are helpful, right? So if we find ourselves disagreeing with a an ecumenical creed of the church, uh, we should first ask ourselves, one, is my disagreement warranted? Okay, I disagree with this. Um, am I actually contradicting this uh, biblically speaking, or is it my understanding that needs to be corrected in light of the creed and ultimately scripture? So the creed should ultimately point us back to scripture, right? We shouldn't just stop with the creed and say, well, okay, this is it. I deviated from this, so you know I can do whatever. No, we 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 should go back to the scriptures, which that creed is based on, and see if you know is my understanding, my my dissent from this creedal statement valid biblically speaking. I just want to say that in passing. Um, but the Chalcedonian definition didn't settle the issue, but it gave a framework which the church worked from and could work from and would become the standard by which the church saw Christ on the pages of Scripture. Um, and again, it was Scripture that really was the standard and where these guys, these men saw these teachings, and they just laid it down in a creed and formulated it. Um, but it, it's nothing new that they came up with, and that, that's something to, uh, to really uh, keep in mind. Um, but Fast forward to the Reformation, right? Maybe about a thousand years. Maybe about a thousand years or so. You have uh, the particular Baptists who compiled the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, chapter 8 is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. But you see language in here where they echo expressly, Almost, it, it almost seems like they're copying word for word, uh, possibly, from the Chalcedonian definition, okay? And I want to read a little bit here. Uh, this is from chapter 8, paragraph 2, and then I'll read paragraph 3. Paragraph 2, the Son of God, <coughs> excuse me, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he hath made, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof yet without sin being conceived by the holy spirit in the womb of the virgin mary 
the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David according to the Scriptures, so that the two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and and man. And I'll read paragraph three real quick. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine and the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and uh, surety, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. So again, you, you notice this language that's being utilized here, right? You have uh, in paragraph two, so that the two whole perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. That's what Chalcedon said, right? What did they say? They said, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and come together into a single person. And then they say before, acknowledge in two natures which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no, no separation. It's almost word for word, right? They're echoing Chalcedon. They're identifying themselves with the church Catholic, and that's Catholic with a little c. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. This is the universal church basic Christianity, the church as a whole, confessing those things uh, which um, transcend denominational divides, right? That's what they are uh, affirming. There is this consistent affirmation and identification of historic Christianity as found in the scriptures, right? They're not coming up with anything new. They're not redefining who Jesus was. They're not coming up with uh, anything new um, as it relates to the person of Christ. They are simply affirming what the church has taught. At this point, it would have been for over a thousand years. And probably before that, uh, if you're counting biblical Christianity as taught in the scriptures. So you can see this identification um, very, very clearly. And they're also echoing Chalcedon <clears throat> with regards to his, who is the person of the Son when it, when it comes to the unification of the natures, right? Paragraph 3, the Lord Jesus in his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son, was sanctified. So the two natures reunified together, the human unified with the divine in the person of the Son. This is the divine logos. This is not a human person. A created person, this is the divine person, Christ, the divine Logos that is eternally begotten of the Father. That is the person that gives, uh, that is the personhood that is given uh, in this unification to the personhood of Christ in the hypostatic union. So, you know, this sounds good. This sounds great. Okay, we've established it historically. We've established it in the Reformed tradition. Um, but what about biblically? And that's re really where it matters, right? Ultimately, that's where it matters. Where do we find these things 
biblically. Where do we see in the scriptures that Jesus is both God and man at the same time, right? Well, first you have to, and, and first of all, this is not meant to be an exhaustive explanation. It's to give an overview of these issues, right? That we're just scratching the surface. So, you know, don't come after me if I've missed um, a certain aspect of talking about the hypostatic, hypostatic union. This is meant to be an overview, okay? Um, a survey, if you will. But we first have to establish the deity of Christ, right? We see in the scriptures there's a clear identification of Jesus with the divine essence, right? John 1.1 1, 1 is probably one of the best places to go. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So here we see John distinguishing between the Word, the divine Logos, and God, who would be the Father, right? He's being noted as a distinct person from the Father, but he's also identified with the divine essence itself, right? Now, this doesn't result in any division of the divine essence. Um, it, it's a relational distinction, which doesn't result in a division um, or any kind of asundering of the divine essence. But there is a real distinction between the two, and it's very clear that that is being portrayed here by John. And then in verse 3 of John 1, um, Jesus is also noted as the creator. So something that is only attributed to God in the Old Testament, we see this very quick, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Well, it says that all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. He is being identified as the creator. Uh, so he has to be God, otherwise you're blaspheming, because you're ascribing a quality only um, of God uh, to somebody else. So he, you're either committing blasphemy, which the scriptures obviously don't do, or he has to be God. That's the only logical conclusion you can come to. Okay. And this also points to his preexistence as well. Also, the scriptures know of no other God. Monotheism is what is confessed when we're talking about the gods, uh, gods in, in the plural. There's only one true God. Um, the book of Isaiah is express about this. Deuteronomy 6, you can find this as well in the Shema, um, but Isaiah 45 is very helpful. Isaiah 45, 5, if you want to refer to that. Um, all the gods are false. There's no God besides the one true God. So Jesus cannot be another God, right? Or even a, a, a little God. He can't be a deified being, right? So he has to be identified with the divine essence. He has to be the same uh, as the divine essence. And, and John, again, being one of the best places to discuss the deity of Christ, um, goes on to say in John eight fifty eight, uh, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. Okay, so Jesus here is identifying himself with the tetragrammaton, the I am, Yahweh or Jehovah, however you want to render it. Um, it's pointing to the self-sufficient God, right? The Ase, the self-sufficient God, the simple God, the God found in Exodus 3.14, right? This is a substantial claim, and it's, it's talking about nature, substance here, the I am. This is where you find in your Bibles uh, L-O-R-D fully capitalized, right? That's what this is referring to. Now, this wasn't just a random claim. 
the, the Jews immediately after Jesus said this picked up stones to stone him. Uh, and why would that be if he wasn't claiming to be God? Well, because he was. They were going to stone him for blasphemy because he was clearly identifying himself as the God in the burning bush. I am that I am, right? And finally, we go to Hebrews chapter 1. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, you can see this very clearly. There is Christ's deity laid out all over this chapter, right? Chapter 1, verse 5, For which of the angels did he, this is the Father, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he bring, again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the people, let all the angels of God worship him. Well, you first and second commandments of uh, God's law make it very clear that to make another image or to have another God before the one true God is sin and evil. Um, what God does not tell his people to sin. So clearly he's telling them to worship, uh, worship Jesus, but that means he must also be God. Right. And then in verse eight, uh, the father, but to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. So, again, you can see here these these clear express affirmations of of Christ being God. There's no other way to get around it in in the scriptures. Uh, and and even if you jump down, one thing that's that's really neat in verse ten through twelve of Hebrews one it says, "And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, <clears throat> and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail." Now, what's interesting here, this is quoting from Psalm, excuse me, quoting from Psalm 102, right? This is from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. That's where he seems to quote. And what's interesting about this passage is there are certain attributes here that are attributed to Jesus that are only attributed to God, right? One, the Chetragrammaton is used here in verse 10. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. Now, verse 10 does uh, read differently than what in Hebrews than what you would find in the Old Testament. This is probably because um, it's a, it seems to be a Septuagint reading. If you read John Gill's commentary on this verse in, in his commentary on Hebrews, he talks about this being consistent with the Septuagint. Um, so it doesn't read exactly the same, but the, the same message is basically there. The point is, he's creator, right? And, and it's referring to Christ as God, the one who made the earth. Um, but there in verses 11 and 12, you see this concept of immutability being applied to the sun. They will perish, but you will remain and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will not fail. So immutability is being applied to the sun here expressly. The Psalm is being applied to Jesus himself. This means he is God. He is the unchanging God that we find in the scriptures. He is immutable. He is simple. He is ase. He is independent of anything outside of himself. Um, so I found that very interesting. Um, but what about his humanity? So we've established his deity. What about his humanity? 
um, in order for Jesus to really take the place of sinners, it, there had to be a human nature uh, that was assumed, right? There had to be a human nature. There had to be a human who obeyed the law of God perfectly because who broke the law of God? Humans did. Humans violated the law of God. Uh, God didn't violate his own law. Animals didn't violate the law of God. Jesus didn't have to become a frog in order to die for frogs. He became a human in order to die for humans. So he had to be like them in every way, yet without sin, right? So he assumed human nature to fulfill the Father's will, which was in part to live a perfect life in his act of obedience, meaning that he fulfilled the law perfectly on their be on his people's behalf, and then through his passive obedience to die on a cross for sinners to fulfill the punishment that our sins deserve and therefore uh, rescind that punishment from us. So he had to be fully human, right? Or there was no justice, or there was no justice. Um, and the writer of Hebrews makes this actually very clear. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 2, 17 through 18, um, it says, Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brother, and that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself uh, was suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Um, and it also says in chapter 2, it says, For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. There's even a distinction given here. He's like, he didn't die for the angels. That's not what he was coming for. He was coming for the seed of Abraham, to the hum humans, right? Humans. So he had to be made like us, right? So it lays us out very clearly in Hebrews chapter 2. And Jesus wasn't made an angel to help angels. He was made a human to save humans. That's very important uh, to understand. He was real flesh, right? He was made in every way like we were. He wasn't a Gnostic phantom um, that didn't appear to be, that appeared to be human, but really wasn't just a ghost floating around. Uh, nor was he the monophysite deity who lacked a human nature, but was merely divine, as we talked about already, as it relates to Chalcedon. <clears throat> but he was God and man, fully God and fully man. So what are the implications for this? What are at least some of them? Uh, the natures were not mixed. We saw this in the 1689 Confession and then a Chalcedonian definition. There, there is no change in either nature as a result of this. Jesus's uh, deity did not swallow up his humanity, and neither did his humanity swallow up his deity. He still remained the immutable, simple, unassay uh, God in his divine nature, and still fully human without interfering or uh, without the uh, divine nature uh, changing or or overtaking the the human nature. <clears throat> That's very very important to remember. Otherwise, you don't really have someone who is fully God. Or you have to actually stop being God if if the human nature could uh, somehow change or overtake or mix with his divine nature. He would have to stop being God. He would have to stop being God. He's no longer God because he can change. He could now he's taken on new states of being, new parts, and he's he's no longer God. You know, he's a creature completely. Um, but then he can't be fully human and truly stand in our place if 
he's now kind of a a mixture of two natures where he's kind of a superhuman. Um, then we have problems there as well. Um, so the two natures were not mixed. Okay. Number two, uh, the two natures were unified in one person, the divine Logos, the second person of the Trinity. Jesus did not have multiple personalities. He didn't have multiple personality disorder where he was, his divine nature was chatting with his human nature and he would change personalities when it suited him best. Now the scriptures know nothing of that. Uh, there's no, yeah, there, there's nothing of that in the scriptures. There's no human person or hypostases, right? And in, yeah, there, there's no uh, human person. It's just the divine logos, right? Just the divine logos subsisting, providing the personhood for Christ's human nature, right? This is what Chalcedon taught. This is what 1689 taught. Again, going back to our confession, paragraph three of chapter eight, the Lord Jesus and his human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the son, right? The person of the son provided that personality, so to speak, for Jesus's human nature, right? Unified in one person, the divine logos. The scriptures know of no other person, so we, we have to come to that conclusion. He's only spoken of in the singular in the scriptures and in singular personal terms. If you look at John 7, I mean, you can find this in multiple places in the Gospels, but John 17 is a great place. John 17, verses 6 through 19, where he's referring to himself in the personal singular when he's talking to the Father. He's not saying we or us. Um, he's referring to one person. Okay. And it has to be the divine Logos, since it was the Logos who assumed human nature, and the divine Logos is a person, imprecisely speaking. Obviously, he's not a person in the same sense that we would think of a person, right? <clears throat> that we're talking about God here, uh, who is not like us, um, but there's still uh, something of of a person there in a sense. Um, but that is all that provides this, since yeah, since the Logos is what unifies the two together, and there's only one person that is spoken of as it relates to the hypostatic union, it has to be the divine Logos that's providing the personhood for that. Okay. And this doesn't add to the divine nature. Jesus didn't, uh, in his divine nature, take on another nature uh, to his divine nature. That would, you know, change God. That would make God composed of parts. He would have to stop being God, right? It's an assumption that does not change or is, um, uh, yeah, there, there are terms for that. There is a term for that. Um, but the divine logos provides that. Um, now you might say, well, okay, if if the divine logos subsists in the in the humanity of Christ, then uh, doesn't he need a human personality in order to be human? Uh, and I'd say no. Uh, what makes a human human and complete is that they have a rational uh, personality, right? Or or rational hypostases, if you will. Uh, there has to be a rational person subsisting in the in the human nature in order to complete the human person. It doesn't have to be a created person or a created hypostasis, right? 
we have a created hypostasis because we're human and we're not God. We're creatures and we're not God. So that means that we are having uh, to live with created hypostasis. But that's not the qualification for what makes a human fully human. It's just a rational hypostasis that's needed. And so when Jesus in his, the divine logos, the second person of the Trinity, uh, provides that to the human nature, he is fulfilling uh, what is needed for him to truly be said to be fully human uh, while at the same time providing that divine nature. Okay. Um, and that, yeah, and those concepts are, are really found in Dolzal's article that I mentioned earlier. Um, so I'd really encourage you to go and read that for a much more greater detail about that. Um, but at a very high level, that's where we find that. Okay. Jesus has two wills. Jesus had a human will and a divine will. Um, we see this, for example, in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Right? Jesus is saying that he has a distinct will from the Father. Right? He's distinguishing his will from the Father's. Um, also, Luke twenty two forty two, where Jesus is in the garden before he's uh, crucified, and he's struggling um, and praying to the Father, Lord, if you can, Father, if you can let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will be done. Right? There's a clear distinction in wills there. Now, this can't be referring to a separate will in Jesus, ad intra, meaning within um, the divine essence itself, because that would, as we have discussed before, um, that would clearly divide the Godhead. Uh, that would, you know, that would divide the Godhead. You would have division, divine simplicity falls apart, immutability and aseity, other core concepts that are taught elsewhere in the scriptures start to fall apart. So this has to be referring to his human will. He must have a, a human will that is distinct, although not contrary to the Father. Okay, And this is also what is needed to make him really human. If Jesus didn't have a human will, we couldn't properly call him human because uh, having desires, having a will is proper to a human nature. <clears throat> and finally, Jesus had a soul. Uh, in order to be human, Jesus needed a soul. Again, what are the components of a human, uh, human nature? A soul, you have a will, you have a mind, uh, you have a body, things like that. Um, we see this in Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. <clears throat> he was committing his soul to God, right? Um, the divine essence doesn't have a soul. Um, there's no soul part of God. All that is in God is God. God is uh, one. He is simple. He is undivided. He doesn't have a soul. Jesus didn't have a soul in his divine nature. This has to be referring to his human nature. And he's giving it up to the Father, right? So he has a human soul. Um, and this is predicted from, it's interesting, this is predicted, and I think Jesus is even quoting from Psalm 31.5, where it says essentially the same thing um, as it relates to Jesus committing himself, uh, or as the Spirit being, a Spirit being committed to the Father. And this this is just another place where you can see the unity of the scriptures when it's talking about um, Christ coming and what he would do, even down to him, <clears throat> excuse me, 
even down to him committing his spirit to the Father on the cross. Um, the level of detail that was predicted um, of Christ is really astounding. Um, but I think that's really it. Now, we've covered a lot. I've gone pretty quickly. You know, we're at about 48 minutes. Um, covered a lot here. This is, again, this is a survey. This is not meant to be exhaustive. There's plenty of other things that can be talked about as it relates to who Christ uh, is. But this gives us some basic principles by which to springboard from into other discussions, into other areas of Christology. Again, I point you to those sources that I mentioned earlier um, that can be helpful in studying these things from a historical and theological perspective. Um, and feel free to, uh, if you have any further questions, I know that there is some discussion um, on Twitter uh, around Christology. Um, any questions, shoot them our way and we can try to answer them. Um, but with that, everyone have a great uh, Saturday and Lord's Day tomorrow. Um, stay tuned uh, next week. We have a guest on Michael Hyken. Lord willing, will be on the show. We're going to be talking about uh, William Kiffin, who was one of the signers of the 1689 Confession. So he's going to be a guest on the show. Um, so stay tuned for that. And uh, we'll see you next week. Take care.